Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Father, we come before you where we are faithless. We ask that you would give us faith. Where we are twisted, we ask that you would straighten us out by the power of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a little anecdote from ministry. Uh, a mother brought her son to the youth pastor at her church for help. She said he's just come back from his first semester at college and he's all messed up. He's now doubting everything that he was raised to believe. And so I've brought my son to you so that you can fix him. Have a talk with him. And the youth pastor felt exasperated. How was he supposed to fix this kid in the course of one conversation? He felt like he was being set up for failure. And sure enough, fail is exactly what he did. His conversation went nowhere. And he shared that story with me after the fact as just another example of the, the difficulty of ministry, and when I read this passage from Matthew 17, I remember that story, because I think the parent and the pastor are both relatable in their fear, in their anxiety. That mother feels the way she does because she cares about her son. That pastor feels the way he does because he cares about that son, and the mother as well. They care, but they also both fear. They're afraid because they care, because of the, the, the love that they have for this struggling son. Both of them are afraid. The mother is afraid that she'll be powerless to help her son, and the pastor is afraid that he's powerless to help either one of them. And so they're frustrated with one another. They're frustrated with themselves. And as we read Matthew 17, and we hear the tone of frustration in the words of the disciples, 
we see the disciples feel a lot of that same emotion. A lot of that care, a lot of that fear, a lot of that frustration. This story comes right after the transfiguration. In in all of the, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which recount it, this is what happens immediately after the transfiguration. I think this event puts its finger on the anxieties that not just the disciples struggle with, but that we all too easily can relate to. So as you think about what happens here, I want us to be honest about our fears, to think about the anxiety that we have that's a lot like theirs. For example, our anxiety for the next generation. Uh, Because I've been teaching summer camps this summer and our kids have just gotten back from summer camp, I can tell you, talking with parents and teachers, there is a lot of concern. There is a lot of anxiety for what's going to happen with this next generation. And if our church leaders seem powerless to secure those kids, then what hope is there? There's another fear that I think we can all relate to, which is the fear of our own weakness. That consciousness that we've been called to do certain things, to follow Christ in certain ways, but but we don't feel like we're able to do that. We're afraid that we're not faithful enough, that we don't believe enough in order to do what we've been called to do. Our faith is small, so small that it won't be sufficient to fulfill our calling. We even have fears and doubts about Christ's power. Whether or not he is able to overcome the darkness. Jesus has just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. And here in this passage, he's talking about a faith that can move mountains. But in the same breath, he goes on to say that he himself will be delivered over and will be killed, will be essentially overpowered by his enemies. That's cause for concern. The disciples hear this and they're greatly distressed. And again, so are we. So are we. Instead of comfort, though, in the face of this fear and this distress, what Jesus says to them and the way that he talks to them almost seems to validate their fear. He doesn't tell them, don't worry, there's, there's nothing to fear. Instead, he says things that I think can only have heightened their sense of anxiety. If you're afraid that you don't have enough faith to save your children, if you're afraid that you don't have enough faith uh, to, to do what you've been called to do, if I'm afraid as a pastor that I don't have enough to help you in that process, Jesus seems to be saying, You're right to be afraid because you don't. Because your faith is so small. Your faith is is little. He expresses exasperation with his followers. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation. As if he's saying you have every right to be afraid given where you're at and who you are because your fears will come true. If anything, compared to the disciples, although there's a lot we can relate to, I think we are in a worse position than they were. At least they knew who their enemies were. 
At least they understood that they wrestled not, in Paul's words, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we've forgotten that. All too often, we act as if winning a culture war will rescue the next generation. As if it's as simple as just voting the right people out of office or boycotting the right products, that that's going to save us. We are supposed to be supernaturalists, but we live like materialists. We study the supernatural academically. We believe the right things about the supernatural, about the spiritual world. And yet we act as if we're not actually living in it and surrounded by it. There's a wonderful novel that Lori and I had the, the pleasure of reading together, listening to together an audiobook, Susanna Clark's novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I always described it as a sort of grown-up Harry Potter, but it's about magic and magicians, but it's set during the, the era of the Napoleonic Wars, so it's like a Jane Austen novel about magicians. It's, it's quite unique, but one of the things that fascinates me in the novel is there's this group of men who have revived interest in magic, and they call themselves the Friends of English Magic. They're like a society that, that has dinners where they promote the study of magic. They are committed to magic, but they refer to themselves as theoretical magicians. Because while they study it and they collect funds to purchase nice antiquarian books about it, they would never dream of practicing it because they're gentlemen. And a gentleman would never stoop to actually doing magic. And I think all too often, as 21st century Christians, we are theoretical supernaturalists. We believe all of this stuff when we're at church, but we live as if that world only exists in the pages of Scripture and not all around us. We believe in the spiritual world, but we would never stoop to engage with it. Now, in the disciples' case, they don't have that problem. Right? They uh, don't disbelieve in the spiritual world. They believe in the reality of demons. It's just that in this instance, they have too little faith in the triumph of Christ over that evil. It's like they believe in the darkness. They're not so sure about the light. They believe in the reality of evil more than the triumph of good. But all too often, we have little faith in either one, except on paper. And if their little faith was not enough to save them, what could our even littler faith accomplish? Or to put it another way, using Jesus' metaphor, why aren't we moving mountains? 2,000 years later, with the benefit of God's revelation and all the history of faithfulness that's gone on before us, why, when we compare ourselves to them, does it seem as if we have less than they had, not more? As if our trust is smaller than theirs, not greater. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
Isn't it funny how so many people are familiar with these words from Scripture and seem to remember them as if there's some kind of pep talk? As if this is part of a motivational speech that Jesus gave? Uh, Just a little faith can move mountains, so have a little faith. Something like that. The very first story that I ever wrote, the, the first one that was published anyway, was called Immovable Mountains, and it was based on this text. In the story, a student goes to a Baptist student union meeting, the kind of meeting that was happening all the time on my campus as an undergraduate, and he hears someone speak on this text. If you just have a little more faith, you could literally move mountains, but he feels so overwhelmed Uh, by the metaphorical mountains in his life, not to mention the literal ones, that he despairs when he hears this. He cannot move mountains. This was published in the literary journal at our college, and when the dean of religious affairs read it, he went to one of my professors and inquired about the state of my soul. He was concerned about my lack of faith, or in other terms, my lack of faith troubled him. If only he could have looked into the future and seen that one day I would be a Presbyterian minister, that Baptist dean of religious affairs would have known his fears were justified. (laughs) But I'd like to think that what I was reacting against was not what Jesus was actually saying, but the way in which what he says has been so misunderstood. The mustard seed, the whole point of the metaphor, is that it's really small. Just that tiny amount of faith, Jesus said, would move mountains. I don't think the point is, is that he's saying, you've got a little faith, and a little faith could move mountains if you just had a little more of that little faith. He's comparing like with like. Like, a little faith is all it would take to move mountains. It's interesting, though, to think about this, too. Uh, There is no account in Scripture of someone doing this. Jesus doesn't say that, that faith the size of a grain of mustard seed would be sufficient to move mountains, and then the apostles are like, cool, we're going to have more faith, and then they start moving mountains around. And that's why it's difficult to know which mountain is exactly Mount Sinai, which was the Mount of Transfiguration, because by faith they were moving those things all over the map, and, and, and it was just hard to know what was what. That doesn't happen in the Bible anywhere. No one does this literally. Jesus is speaking here metaphorically. In fact, he's speaking hyperbolically, like he's exaggerating for effect in order to make a point. He does the same thing in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry. He says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, why does he choose stones there when he could speak of anything else in creation crying out? Well, he's choosing, I think, the thing least likely to do what he's saying. He's choosing stone because stone can't speak. Because this is just not something that's going to happen. If he said, you know, the very donkeys would cry out, people might think of Balaam's donkey and say, well, yeah, I mean, stuff like that could happen, but not with stone. Same thing here. Mountains don't move, right? You don't move mountains over. If they're in your way, you don't just scoot them over by faith so that you can proceed in a straight line. That's the reason why he's choosing this. This is so improbable as to be, in Jesus' words, impossible. And that's the point. That this this speck of faith would be sufficient to do the impossible. 
But he's echoing here what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, for nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus says nothing will be impossible for you with faith. Now, he can't be saying have a little more faith and nothing will be impossible because the whole point of the mustard seed as a metaphor is how little it is. The message that we tend to hear in this text is basically all you need is uh, one unit of faith to do the impossible. But unfortunately, you only have like half a unit. So you need to work on it and get it up to mustard seed level. But that's not that much. So don't be discouraged. Just keep working until you get there. Just have more faith. But I don't think actually that Jesus's point here has to do with the volume of faith. It has to do with having faith at all. He doesn't just say you have little faith. He also says you're faithless. I think that's the point. That's the point. The absence of faith. The disciples go to Jesus and their question is, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do this? Why did we fail when we tried to do it? Jesus says, because of your little faith. And when they ask this question, they're treating faith as if faith is another way of describing spiritual strength. And that's often how we think about faith. Like faith is something you could measure. What percentage of faith do you have? And and whatever that number is, it corresponds to how much spiritual strength do you have. The way that we can tell how strong a person is by how much weight he can press. We can tell how faithful you are by whatever the spiritual equivalent of doing that is. And I realize that's not much of a lift, but for me, that would be considerable. Your faith wasn't strong enough, we think Jesus is saying. If only it were stronger, then you could have done it. As if the answer is just building your faith and growing in faith. But really, I think the point he's making is you couldn't do it because your faith is in yourself not in God. You couldn't do it because you could never do it. Only God could do it. You could only do it if you had faith in him, not in yourself. If your takeaway from this text is just something like, if I had enough faith, then I could do the work, then all you're really doing is turning faith into a form of work, right? You have to remember what it is that that faith is. Oftentimes we talk about faith as we do grace, as if it's some sort of abstract thing. We talk about it like it's a force outside of ourselves and outside of God, apart from God. But of course, grace doesn't exist apart from God. Grace is God's favor to us. That's what grace is. Faith is not some quantity outside of us that we can access. What faith is, is trusting in God and not in something else, above all, not in ourselves. I think that distinction becomes clearer if we look at the same story, but in a different gospel account. If you look at the transfiguration in Mark's gospel, it's immediately followed, as I say, by this same event. But in Mark's gospel, the emphasis is a little bit different. Here, Matthew emphasizes the faithlessness of the disciples, their struggle to believe. But in Mark's gospel, he focuses on the father, the parents, 
And on that man's difficulty, his struggle to believe. That man, after the disciples have failed, goes to Jesus. He appeals to Jesus to heal his son. And he says this. This is uh, Mark 9, verse 22. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And before Jesus does anything else, he reacts to that phrasing. Like, there's something about that that's, that's he's a little bit incredulous. He's like, if you can, that's, that's how you're prefacing this? Like, if there's anything that I can do? It's, it's hilarious, in a weird way, that this is the way the guy approaches Jesus. Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. There's no question of if. All things are possible for one who believes. And this is where the father famously replies, I believe. Help my unbelief. That too is very relatable. These are certainly not people that we could stand in judgment over. These are people who say things and feel things that we could say ourselves. I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, when you read in Mark's Gospel, it's really obvious that Jesus is not telling this father to increase the level of his faith so that it can clear the bar so that he can be strong enough to heal his son. Instead, he is clearly telling this man to believe in Jesus' strength to heal him. Now, the disciples, when they're trusting in their own spiritual strength, they fail. And their failure shakes the confidence of the man who's come to them for help. It shakes his confidence in them, but also in their teacher, and also, it seems, in himself. But when he believes, it's not his belief that saves his son. It's God's power that saves, because nothing will be impossible with God. Now, God didn't work through the disciples to heal the boy because the disciples weren't relying on God in faith. They were relying on themselves, right? Why could not we do this? Why don't we have the power to do this as your followers? And you can understand why they might have felt like they should. Like, these are guys who've been with Jesus. They've done this kind of thing before. Some of them had even been and seen the transfiguration. It probably made sense to them that they would possess within themselves the power to do this. If they had relied on God and not themselves, they might have done this. If they'd relied on him just a little, they might have done this. That little faith of theirs could have been enough. It's interesting. Matthew uses that term. He says, you know, you have little faith. And and actually, it's the same word that Matthew uses when he refers to the twelve. Whenever Matthew refers to the the twelve apostles, he calls them, like, literally the little faiths. And this is how he sees these men, including himself, which makes sense because through experiences like this, Matthew would have learned that you don't need a lot of faith you need a lot of God. And there's a difference. Jesus says that nothing is impossible to those who believe. Gabriel says with God, nothing will be impossible. And yet the disciples are distressed and Jesus is frustrated. But 
The disciples don't frustrate Jesus because now they should be stronger than they are. Like, if you think about the frustration of Jesus, it's not because he's concerned that they're not as advanced as they ought to be by now, that they should be stronger than this. Jesus isn't frustrated that at this point, you should be able to heal with your own spiritual strength. You shouldn't need me to do this. You should be standing on your own. In other words, Jesus' frustration is not that they've somehow failed to progress as far as they ought to have done. They frustrate Jesus because by now they should be relying on him and not on themselves. He keeps telling them, I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And they stop listening when they hear killed. And what they feel is distress. But think about what that means. Like they're hearing him announce the resurrection. And what they feel is distress and panic because all they see is defeat when Jesus is announcing victory. The resurrection, when they're told about it, fills them with fear, not with joy, because they're worried about what will happen instead of trusting in him, instead of putting their faith in him. They're worried about what they will do when these things take place, instead of trusting in him to do all that must be done. That's the source of his frustration. Are you doing the same thing? Are you giving Jesus the same cause for frustration? Are you still waiting for the time when, when it's going to be up to you? Are you still looking and, and, and worrying because it seems as if you won't be able to do what you must do? Are you hearing the good news and receiving it with distress? If you are, then Jesus has two answers for you here. Right? He answers this distress in two ways. He answers with his frustration, and he answers with his action as well. If you look at the frustration of Jesus, it's interesting. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Those words, although they are frustration, are also very loving and parental concerns. And what he says in those two statements overlaps, but isn't exactly the same thing. There's two different ideas. They're very parental things. Like what parent faced with a child's failure to listen hasn't wondered, how long will I have to put up with this? When will you finally learn and do what is right? I think most parents have had that experience of exasperation. And what parent, anxious for the flourishing of a child, hasn't asked, what's going to happen to you when I'm not here? How are you going to overcome obstacles when I'm gone? Like These are frustrations, but they're frustrations born out of love and care. So when we hear Jesus say these things, the thing that we know is that he cares about the people who are frustrating him, and there should be some comfort in that exasperation. They haven't been written off or abandoned, just as he's not writing us off either. He cares about us. If you care about your children, 
if you care about the next generation, if you care about the people around you, your friends, your family, if you care what happens to them, that experience is small compared to the affection that God has for us, the care that he has for us. So Jesus gives us comfort even in his frustration, but also and especially in his action and what he does in the face of the failure of his disciples. I love it. After he expresses his frustration, he says, bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. Let me do this. That's Jesus' response. Just as when he's giving them the distressing news, he doesn't stop with, I will be killed. He actually goes on to say, raised on the third day. That's comfort. He's going to be raised again. Resurrection. He's doing the action. That's real comfort. The real comfort that Jesus gives us is in what he does. That comfort comes when you forget about your own strength and you rely on his instead. When the Father trusts, Jesus heals. When the disciples trust, demons are cast out, not by their power, but by God working in and through them. Now, I said earlier that nowhere in Scripture do people literally move mountains. But when Jesus talks about his resurrection, at least metaphorically, I think we can say a mountain is moved. When that stone is rolled away from the tomb, the mountain of death is shoved aside and the way is made straight for his people to cross through it into life by the power of Christ that we receive through faith, through trusting in what he does, not in what we do. Jesus did the impossible for us and calls us not to do the impossible. He calls us to have a little faith in him, to trust in him to do it. So believe in him and have faith in him, even if your prayer has to be, I believe, help my unbelief. Because no one is asking you to do the work. No one is asking you to be strong enough to accomplish it. Not even the work of faith. Christ is calling you to believe and he will work in you and through you. So simply trust in him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.